Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. I'm the host, Scott. Today's episode is called The Ancient Origin of Mother in Heaven. feminine divine is an important aspect of deity that was removed anciently. The idea of a mother in heaven is a beautiful concept that Joseph Smith introduced at the end of his life. Unfortunately, he was killed before he could fully develop this theology and teach it and teach it in a way that it would have stuck better in the religion. As it stands right now, it's one of those, there are air quotes on this in case you can't see them, doctrines about deity. The concept of mother in heaven has been with the church for a very long time, but it's kind of swept under the rug, and anytime it's discussed, it's almost taboo, which is unfortunate because the idea of a mother in heaven is is very important. So in this episode, we're going to dig into the belief of mother in heaven in Mormonism and how this is actually a hit for ancient Israel. But I have no idea why apologists don't jump on this because not only do we have evidence of a mother in heaven, we also have a name for her. A name that is in the scriptures. It is in the Old Testament. I'm going to start a series in in the near future where I discuss the Gospel Topics essays with a friend of mine. So I'll dig into more fully the Mother in Heaven Gospel Topics essay down the road. But for now, I want to I want to explore this idea of Mother in Heaven through an ancient lens. As I've mentioned a couple of times in a few episodes in the past, I am a history enthusiast and I've done a bit of study into the ancient Near East. Now, a lot of the sources for what I'm going to talk about today come from a number of different biblical scholars. The, the one that I'm quoting more heavily from today is a book by, by Mark S. Smith, and it's a book called The Origins of Biblical Monotheism. Israel's Polytheistic Background and the Ugaritic Texts. This is a fascinating book. I might do a number of episodes about some of the, some of the topics that I've been learning about in, in this book. The church's stance on this concept of a mother in heaven is kind of, they don't want to acknowledge that Joseph Smith taught it himself. They don't want to put out there and tout that it was a revelation to him. So they want to distance themselves from it a little bit. But at the same time, keep it as a core fundamental doctrine, but we don't talk about it. Many times in gospel doctrine classes or when asking questions about mother in heaven, there are trite little phrases that are, in essence, thought-stopping techniques 
when Mother in Heaven is brought up, oftentimes people will say, oh no, she is too sacred to discuss. Would you like your wife being talked about? Would you like your wife's name being taken in vain? Phrases such as that to get people to disengage with the conversation about the feminine divine. While at the same time, the, the church also acknowledges the poem written by Eliza R. Snow, My Father in Heaven, that was later turned into the, the hymn, Oh My Father. And in that, in that poem, in that hymn, Mother in Heaven is specifically mentioned, but that's the only place that you will find her in writing in any of the canon, if you will, if the hymn book can be considered part of the canon. But there's nothing in modern scripture that talks about her. But there is in ancient scripture. So let's dig in. We're going to read a little bit of 2 Kings. We're going to discuss the polytheistic background of ancient Israel. Before I dig too far into this, the way I look at religion and mythology is as a conversation. It's less a strict adherence where every person that talks about the theology believes the same things. Instead, it's a conversation of theologians, of prophets, talking to each other through time, if you will, sometimes disagreeing with each other, sometimes erasing and changing what previous prophets have written. There's evidence for that throughout all of scripture. And when we look at it for what it really is, as a conversation, as a theological discussion, we'll understand a little bit better about what's happening in the scriptures and in the modern church today. Now, in 2 Kings 23.4, we get a mention of the goddess figure of the feminine divine. But when I read this, you'll notice that she's not there, and, we'll, and I will explain why. And here is the King James Version, the version that all Mormons grew up on, of 2 Kings 23.4, and it says, and the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the door, to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, and for the grove, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. Now the first name that's mentioned in there is Baal. That is a, a common name. Many people that have read and studied the Old Testament are familiar with Baal. There are lots of interactions with him as a neighboring deity. Baal was a god in the Canaanite pantheon, and the neighboring cultures around Israel worshipped Baal. There are a lot of similarities between Baal and Yahweh, and I will I'll go into those in another episode. It's fascinating. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting a little bit sidetracked. But the similarities, in some cases, these similarities are blatant plagiarisms of previous texts about Baal, rewritten in our Old Testament to describe Yahweh. Now, I said that we would get the, the name of this goddess, but she wasn't there in the King James Version. Her name is actually changed to the grove in the King James Version. And this is a problem with, with certain translations. It's important to look at different translations of the same text to make sure that you're getting a good understanding. 
one of the one of the problems is that this divine name, this goddess, I'll get to her name. Give me just a minute. But in the in the translation process, her name written in Greek looks like the plural of tree. So basically, it looks like groves. And so every instance that you have her name, Isaiah 17, 8, 27, 9, 2 Chronicles 15, 16, 24, 18, whenever you have the words the groves or the grove appear in the King James Version of the Bible, it's actually a reduction of the goddess's name because of a bad translation. So when the King James Version was translated, they translated the word into the word grove or groves. And that's why we have that problem today. Let's see how this same verse reads, and I won't read the whole thing, but we'll see how the same verse in 2 Kings reads with a better translation. So this is the new international version of 23.4. I'm going to start partway through. I'm only going to read the pertinent part with this significant change. The verse is talking about removing symbols from the temple. It says, Remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. And that's where we get the name of the feminine divine in ancient Israel. Her name was Asherah. In many of the ancient Near East cultures, you have a divine council sometimes depicted as a family tree with a father at the head, with a mother and their children. Everyone in this divine family would be the Elohim that we hear about in scripture. The Elohim is the divine council or the divine family of the gods. Now, in 2 Kings 23.4, they're saying that the king ordered them to remove the vessels that were made for Baal from the temple and to remove the vessels that were made for Asherah from the temple. Now, what is happening here, and this is interesting and unfortunate, but you have a shift in the theology where the group that is running the show, those that are in charge, they do not want Asherah to be worshipped. So they've written the scripture, and they are guiding the conversation in a way to remove her worship from the temple. Now, there is some debate whether or not she was an actual god. According to Marcus Smith, who is the Helena Professor of Old Testament Literature at Princeton Theological Seminary, he says that the consensus is that Asherah was a goddess in ancient Israelite religion. Interestingly, she pops up in a number of other places. They talk about her in, I mentioned a number of scriptures in Isaiah and in Chronicles. Well, just a couple of verses, a couple of chapters before 23, it talks about an Asherah pole or an image for Asherah being put into the temple. But we also have some other inscriptions of her from neighboring cultures in this period of, it, of time, around 800 BCE, you have the Kirbert el Quam, Tel Mikne and Kuntilet Adrud inscriptions. So these are, these are three different places and three different inscriptions. Kuntilet Adrud is a dig site 
from the late 9th and early 8th centuries BCE, the northeast part of the Sinai Peninsula. So it would be it would be south of Jerusalem. It was excavated in about 1975 by the Tel Aviv University. There's a main building in this dig site that was that was is described as fortress-like with two rooms, lots of art on the walls and paintings. Various animals, stylized trees, human figures. Many of these depictions are depict are gods, but they don't appear to be coherent scenes. The art is fascinating, so if you want to go and look it up, it's very cool to look at to see some of these this ancient artwork. It's about three thousand years old at this point. The iconography is a Syrian slash Phoenician. So at this specific site they found this phrase, and it sheds a little bit of light on the relationship between Yahweh and Asherah. In the Kuntalet Adrud inscription, it mentions under one of these depictions, Yahweh and his Asherah. Now, it's an implication based on the suffix of her name that denotes her as being a consort of Yahweh in this depiction. Now, most scholars will agree that this Asherah is a goddess that was worshipped at the time, the disagreement comes from this interpretation of her as the divine consort of Yahweh. But the evidence does point in that direction, and many scholars do think that Asherah is Yahweh's consort. Until more evidence comes to light, it is still tenuous, and so it's not it's not a 100% certainty. But but there is certainty that she was worshipped in ancient Israel. In the, the, next, the next dig site I want to talk about is Tel Mikne. It's, uh, it provides a little bit more evidence of this Asherah as the divine consort for Yahweh. Now, in this dig site that dates back to about 603 BCE, so that's, that's just like a handful of years before the Babylonian exile. In, in, this, in this dig site, they found a number of inscriptions referring to the goddess, but there, um, there is a little bit of debate on this one because it's not, it's not as clear based on the grammar and the script. They're attesting to like a non-Israelite or non-Judean cult. At this particular site in Tel Mikne, they found a 7th century silver medallion with a figure praying to a goddess standing on a lion. This divine figure, this goddess on the lion, may be Asherah. In the book Canaanite Myth and Hebrew Epic by Frank Moore Cross, he talks about some of the symbols representing Asherah. And on page 33, we've got a quote that talks about Asherah. It's found in Ugarit and in Egypt, and this portrayal shows Asherah as a goddess standing on a lion holding one or more serpents. So not only do we have a name for her, we have some representations of her found in the ancient Near East that depict her as a strong woman riding a lion and holding on to snakes. Some of these symbolisms fit right into the teachings of the church. Again, I am just baffled why they don't 
jump onto this. As I mentioned earlier, not all scholars come to a consensus on this. So there are people that, that don't think that this is the right translation and the right understanding of these things. But what is not contested is the fact that there was a goddess named Asherah in the Canaanite and ancient Israelite pantheon of a feminine divine. Now, what her relationship with, with Yahweh is, is still debated, but the fact remains, there is feminine divine in the ancient Near East that readers of the Old Testament and believers in God should claim as their own, as a way to, to retake some of that feminine divine and put it back into practice. Because it sounds like Asherah is pretty badass. Standing on lions, wrangling snakes. She seems powerful. One of the evidences for Asherah worship in ancient Israel is actually part of the Deuteronomic Code that says not to do it. Specifically Deuteronomy 16.21. Again, in the New International Version, it says... Do not set up any wooden Asherah pole beside the altar you build to the Lord your God. We'll have to explain this a little bit backwards, but Deuteronomy was not written by Moses. It wasn't. Just going to throw that out there. The second part is it wasn't written until much later. Deuteronomic code was written in like the late 7th century BCE. They typically put it either having written it himself or with a school of priests together, but they, they say that uh, Jeremiah was the one that had a hand in writing the book of Deuteronomy. That being said, the way this verse is written, it says, don't put up any wooden Asherah poles beside the altar to Yahweh. The, the prophets, the church leaders, they're not going to command the members of the church to do a thing that they're not doing already. So for example, a modern example, if you will, when the guideline on only one piercing came out and President Hinckley said that women in the church should only have one earring, that came out when the fashion and trends were to have multiple earrings and, and gauges and other alternative facial piercings. The church came out with a guideline against it. Let's pretend for a moment that those beauty standards were not in vogue and are still not in vogue. Let's say that, that women don't wear earrings at all. Why would the church need to make a commandment against it if the people aren't doing it? And that's, that's the way that this, the, the logic for this typically goes. The prophet Jeremiah, the writers of Deuteronomy, would not have written in the scriptures that you're not supposed to worship Asherah in conjunction with Yahweh unless people were worshiping Asherah in conjunction with Yahweh. They were planting her, her groves and the poles that were an image of her next to Yahweh's worship sites, inside of the worship sites sometimes, in, as was the case in Second Kings that we looked at a bit earlier. 
there is clear evidence that the ancient Israelites worshipped Asherah and regarded her as a goddess. So we have ancient sources that attest to the feminine divine and even possibly to the fact that this Asherah was Yahweh's consort and that there was a husband-wife or couple pairing between the two of them. When I read about this a number of years ago, the question leapt out at me, why don't the apologists jump on this? This could easily be interpreted as a hit for the church. The feminine divine is a hit for Joseph Smith. If the apologists are looking for an ancient reference or an ancient evidence of this belief, and I've never understood why the church doesn't latch onto it, because it is very cool and empowering. The unfortunate thing is that the the Jewish religion around 800 BCE and onward into their exile, they, they shifted the theology away from polytheism and they, they converted their belief system more towards monotheism and Asherah was lost. Belief in her disappeared and she went to the wayside after bad translations and she disappeared to time, which is so sad. One of my favorite professors of, of mythology, Joseph Campbell, he worded it like this, and he's talking about both the divine masculine and the divine feminine. And this quote is from his book, Goddesses, Mysteries of the Feminine Divine. Joseph Campbell says this, They are equals, but not the same. Because when you lose the tension of polarities, you lose the tension of life. According to this framework of the loss of the feminine divine, the mythology loses that polarity, that tension between masculine and feminine, and it loses that tension or representation of life. And interestingly, Joseph Smith tried to bring that back. He taught that there was a mother and father in heaven. The citation that we normally only get is the Eliza R. Snow version, which is just a poem. But the, the sad fact is that isn't on the lips of a prophet. And so church members don't pay credence to it, unfortunately, which is very sad. It's sad that we box in our members and tell them that they can't think for themselves or deduce implications about God without the permission of a man. The unfortunate truth is that when you're discussing with a member of the church, they want it to be from the mouth of a prophet. And I think that's problematic. I think we need to allow space for people to think and reconcile for themselves. And if you believe in God, to receive revelation for yourself. But that's a form of control that I, I doubt the church will ever lend to its members. I want to cite a story told in the history of the Ladies Mutual Improvement Association of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In this collection of stories and historical documentation, you have a story of Zina D. Young, the same Zina that married Joseph Smith, 
relating a story of a conversation she had with the prophet after her mother died. Now, this is on page 30 of the book. And so I'm going to quote this because this is, this is Zina relating a story, relating a conversation she had with the prophet. It was told by Aunt Zina D. Young to the writer as to many others during her life. Father Huntington lost his wife under the most trying circumstances. Her children were left desolate. One day, when her daughter Zina was speaking with the prophet Joseph Smith concerning the loss of her mother and her intense grief, she asked the question, Will I know my mother as my mother when I get over on the other side? Certainly you will, was the instant reply of the prophet. More than that, you will meet and become acquainted with your eternal mother, the wife of your father in heaven. And have I a mother in heaven? exclaimed the astonished girl. You assuredly have. How could a father claim his title unless there were also a mother to share that parenthood? At the time of this story, Zina would have been about 17 years old, and in only three years after this event, she would, she would marry the prophet. Again, I am just baffled why apologists will jump on the silliest explanations and the most absurd logical leaps to come to their conclusions. But they have a hit in scripture tying Joseph Smith back to ancient Near East beliefs. I'm handing this to you, apologists. If you ever get, a, get around to listening to this, this is a hit. I think that if the church incorporates the feminine divine more into its theology, is more accepting of women and empowering to women, even allowing the worship of Heavenly Mother and the dialogue with Heavenly Mother, it will create this better metaphor for the world that we live in than the one that's presented by the church today. Now, unfortunately, the treatment that Mother in Heaven gets by the Mormon church is influenced, I believe, by 1 Timothy. Now, 1 Timothy is by many scholars considered to be pseudepigraphic. It was not actually written by Paul. So these, these concepts don't reflect what Paul taught in his other letters. On the other hand, there, there are scriptural references throughout the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, that do talk about women having a, a secondary role. Now, I don't agree with this. I think this is a control tactic that, that men have used over women. Now, in 1 Timothy, the, the quote in particular is uh, 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. And right in the middle there, he's talking about the role of women in church. And this is where you get that famous quote, let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. We have a scriptural basis for misogyny. I will note, and perhaps do an episode down the road on this, the, the Genesis story of Adam and Eve is not as clear 
as, as we have been led to believe. Better interpretation is that Adam was there with her when she partook of the fruit in one of the two accounts. <laughs> Going into that, I started, I started talking and I actually recorded a bit about that, but uh, it, that's probably got to be its own episode. There's a lot there. But back to the point, the way the Mormon church has created, then silenced Mother in Heaven and removed her from worship and removed her from the picture is in effect the same thing that First Timothy 2 is doing. Women can be present as long as they don't talk, as long as they are submissive. And that is the pattern that the church has set up for women. And that is not healthy and that is not okay. When we can discourse openly about both the masculine divine and the feminine divine, as Joseph Campbell put it so simply, we will bring back those polarities and that tension that exists between men and women. And we'll bring back that tension that exists in real life. And this addition can breathe new life into belief. Now, for me, I'm interested in this subject purely academically. I, I just am fascinated by ancient history. And I'm fascinated by the implications of these ancient beliefs on the modern beliefs. Even though I'm not a believer myself, I love bringing up these subjects because it pushes back against the established narrative in a way where they have to reconcile the fact that ancient Israelites believed in the feminine divine. Now there's one more symbol of this goddess that I didn't mention yet, and I saved it for now because I, I want to tie it into the beliefs in the church. There is iconography of Asherah related to a tree of life. Now this is in Ugaritic amulets, and these Asherah poles are a clear symbol of the tree of life. In Mormonism, they have the story of the tree of life. How much more beautiful would that story be if they incorporated the imagery of Asherah where she is the source of that tree of life that gave life to the spirit sons and daughters? How much more beautiful is that imagery and that symbolism when you add in the missing piece? The missing piece is femininity. It is so grossly misogynistic to create a divine mother and father pairing and then completely silence the mother. Could you imagine if your father did that to you about your mother? How would we feel in our own family relations if we prevented the mothers in our lives from having relationships with their children? These arguments that believers make in an effort to silence worship of the feminine divine, they don't hold enough weight to be taken seriously. And the only reason there's no word about her is because the moment the church accepts the feminine divine and places her in a role of power, the whole structure of the church has to crumble because women deserve that power. I don't think that change will happen anytime soon. 
For the church to make a change like that, it would have implications on the structure and hierarchy that the church uses today. And I don't see anything like that changing anytime soon. The next time you're discussing with a believer or a member of the church or anyone and the subject of mother in heaven comes up, bring the images to mind of that, that strong female riding a lion, grappling snakes, worthy of worship and adoration because she is a strong woman and she has a name and her name is Asherah. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I know it was a little bit more history, a little bit more quotations than I normally do, but this subject fascinates me immensely. And I'm planning on down the road doing a number of comparisons. I want to discuss subjects such as the size of God, the nature of God. I want to talk about the relationship between Baal and Yahweh. But to start it all off, I really need to dig into the documentary hypothesis and establish that first so that listeners that are new to these subjects might have a basis to to start on. So those that are still inclined to believe in God, the next time you sit down to pray, consider praying to Asherah. Consider connecting with that feminine divine. If you're on the opposite end of the belief spectrum, you don't believe in God anymore. But the next time someone considers God, perhaps refer to them with she, her pronouns or they, them pronouns, <laughs> if, if for nothing else to throw off a believer. <laughs> Thank you for listening today. I have a lot more that I want to discuss about Asherah. I didn't talk at all about some of the reasons why she was removed. I just mentioned that they changed their belief system and shifted from polytheism to henotheism and then ultimately to monotheism. And polytheism means believing in all gods. Henotheism is believing that your god is the most powerful one, but the other gods still exist. And then monotheism, that your god is the only god. There's clear evidence through scripture that the ancient Israelites went through this shift in theology. And that has very important implications on a restorationist movement. If Joseph Smith were to be restoring what was believed in ancient times, shouldn't he then be restoring henotheism or polytheism? Just some food for thought. I hope you have an excellent day. <laughs>